Now, please turn in your Bibles to the prophecy of Malachi. Malachi, the very last book of the Old Testament, the twelfth of the twelve minor prophets. And this evening we're in chapter 3, and we'll be looking at verses 6 through 12. Malachi, chapter 3, verses 6 through 12. Listen to this. This is the very word of God. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight says the Lord of hosts. That is the reading of God's word. Let's ask his blessing upon it now. Father in heaven, teach us from the Holy Scriptures. So we pray that your own spirit would be our teacher this evening and that Christ our Savior would be exalted and that you would receive all the glory. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Throughout... uh, the Old Testament especially, the command, the call to return to the Lord is language of repentance, language of a call to repentance, God calling his wayward people to come back to him, which includes the the notion of repentance. And so I titled the message tonight, Return to the Lord, but I confess that's something of a double entendre, because uh, return to the Lord does mean repent, turn back to him, but you also know, if those of you have been in in church for many, many years, you know that at that point in a worship service, especially in churches uh, where they pass the plates, pass the offering plates down the pews, oftentimes when someone's getting ready to announce that that's what they're about to do, they'll say something along the lines of, let us... uh, return to the Lord a portion of what he has given us, right? You've heard that language before, right? With reference to the giving of tithes and offerings. So we return to the Lord in repentance, but in our giving of our offerings, we're returning something to the Lord, you see. So it means both things and can be uh, viewed both ways because God does call his people to repentance. 
but God also calls his people to give. And in both, we return to the Lord. Because whatever I put in that offering plate, it's not as if it's mine and it came from me and I'm giving something to God that he didn't previously have. Anything I put in that plate is ultimately God's and he gave it to me. And I'm just returning it, you see. And so this text teaches us that we worship our faithful God by returning to him a portion of what he has given to us. And there's three things to see in this text that I hope to bring out to your attention. First of all, there's a reminder here of God's faithfulness. Secondly, we read about the principle of the tithe. And then finally, there's a promise of God's blessing. So first of all, a reminder of God's faithfulness. From time to time during our hymn sing, uh, someone will request that, that beloved hymn, Great is Thy Faithfulness. We frequently sing it in our worship services too. It's uh, one of the best loved hymns of the Christian faith. <clears throat> Great is Thy Faithfulness. And there's that line in this first stanza of Great is Thy Faithfulness that says, Thou changest not. It's a testimony. We're singing in praise to God the testimony that God does not change. He is immutable. And that is taken from the very text we're looking at tonight. Now, <clears throat> there are a number of scriptures that speak of the unchangeableness of God and his immutability, but this is one of the key passages, one of the key proof texts of the fact that God does not change. And the big $5 word we use for the fact that God doesn't change is immutability. From the same root where we get the, the term mutation, right? If something mutates, it means it changes. And if God is immutable, it means he doesn't change. He cannot change. And that's our God. Here's the thing. Immutability can become to us just a sort of an academic notion. A fact that we state about God, but does, doesn't necessarily have a whole lot of relevance to us in daily life. In other words, uh, what's the application of that? But another thing that this passage does, and it might be why it's one of the more popular verses or passages to hold forth the doctrine of divine immutability, is because it also shows us that God's immutability is not merely academic. In fact, it's very practical. Because what God says here in verse 6 is, I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. So it's on the basis, the very basis of God's unchanging nature that these Israelites to whom Malachi is prophesy, prophesying have not already become like Sodom and Gomorrah. They haven't been consumed because God is faithful, even though they have been faithless to him. And so God gives this gracious reminder of his faithfulness, and he gives them this reminder in the face of their rebellion and of their self-righteousness. By that, I'm referring to 
Well, just we start right here in the book of Malachi. These protests that they raise over and over again as God brings some point to their attention, as he makes some allegation against them, and they respond kind of in pride with these questions that are not sincere, they're not, they're not seeking questions, they're complaining questions, they're, they're self-righteous questions. And so they say in verse 7, how shall we return? Or in verse 8, how have we robbed you? And that really is kind of a snapshot, in a way, of the whole history of Israel. God even says so. From the days of your fathers, he says in verse 7, from the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. And that's really the whole point of the speech that Stephen gave before the Jewish council in Acts chapter 7. The Tuesday Men's Bible Study, a while, little while back, uh, studied the book of Acts. We went all the way through it. In chapter 7, Stephen um, gets in trouble with the religious authorities because they're, they're upset that he's preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they, they lay hands on him. They bring him before the council. And they demand testimony from him. And the whole seventh chapter of Acts is Stephen's speech before the Jewish high council. And what he does is he basically says, your fathers have been unfaithful and stubborn and rebellious and they've cast aside God's servants from the time we became a nation. This whole reality is summed up by Jeremiah in seventh chapter of his prophecy. In verses 25 and 26 of Jeremiah 7, This is God's testimony through the prophet Jeremiah. He says, From the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt to this day, I have persistently sent all my servants, the prophets, to them day after day, yet they did not listen to me or incline their ear, but stiffened their neck. And so we need to be amazed then by what we read here in Malachi chapter 3 because despite Israel's unfaithfulness, the Lord God remains faithful. That's what he's telling them. That's what Paul was saying in 2 Timothy 2.13. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. He doesn't change. God, through Malachi, makes this appeal to his own faithfulness when he calls the Israelites to repent. And one of the commentators I read this week, Andrew Hill, noted that the very fact that repentance and restoration remained an option for Israel was testimony of God's enduring love for his people. God is faithful. He always remains faithful. So we have that reminder. But then... He introduces the principle of the tithe because when God says, return to me, and the Israelites respond kind of in protest, really, uh, how shall we return? What do you want? In other words, God answers in verse 8 and says, will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. And then again, the Israelites come back with, well, how have we robbed you? 
But when they ask, how should we return? How should we repent? God responds by saying, you're robbing me. They ask how, and his answer is, in your tithes and contributions. And as I was studying this, it occurred to me that it probably wasn't that they weren't giving at all. In fact, I'd rather doubt that. They were probably giving. but they weren't bringing in the full tithe. In fact, in that sense, they were probably very much like modern worshipers. You've got the whole range in the, uh, in the church, right? You've got some who aren't giving at all. You've got some who give, but don't give a tithe. You have some who give very, very generously and give above the tithe. Saw lots of really fascinating statistics on giving in the in the church in the in the modern church. I won't uh, not really unto edification probably for me to share those, so I won't. But these ancient Israelites in post-exilic Judah were a lot like the church in America today. Some weren't giving, some were giving a little, but they were robbing God, and as a result. According to verse 9, they were under a curse. Look at verse 9 with me again. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. But God doesn't just pronounce the curse. He provides a remedy. We see that in verse 10. He says, bring in the full tithe. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And so that brings up the concept of tithing, and it provides for us uh, some information about that, about the principle of tithing. So I want to just talk for a moment about, first of all, the origin of tithing, the origin of tithing and the purpose of it. The first clear example we have in Scripture of a tithe can be found in Genesis, so if you would like to turn with me to Genesis, go to chapter 14. This is the first explicit reference to tithing in the Bible, any kind of tithe. And it uh, comes from Abraham. So Genesis 14, starting in verse 17, where it says, After his return from the defeat of Kedarlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom, Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abraham gave him, that is Melchizedek, a tenth of everything. The first biblical reference to a tithe, right there. Uh, then, of course, later on, it was legislated, it was kind of codified, you might say, in the law of Moses. There are several examples that we could look at, but let's, uh, let's just look at a couple. Leviticus 27. Turn there with me, please. And this is where it's actually laid down in the law of God, the, the principle of the tithe. So in, in um, Leviticus 27, 
verse 30, it says, every tithe of the land, whether of the seed of the land or of the fruit of the trees, is the Lord's. It is holy to the Lord. And we get a little bit more information that's, that's helpful for our discussion and consideration in Deuteronomy chapter 14. Deuteronomy chapter 14, in verse 22, it says, You shall tithe all the yield of your seed that comes from the field year by year. So there's where you have the people called to tithe, and the reference to the fruit of the seed would expand and would be inclusive of, of all their other uh, wealth, however else the Lord prospers them. So that's the origin of tithing. That's where we see it. We see the first example with Abraham. We see it laid down in the Law of Moses um, quite some time later. That's the origin. But what's the purpose of tithing? <clears throat> it's not as if God needs grain. God doesn't need money. God is the owner of everything. So he's not asking us to tithe because he needs to keep his bank account short up. What's the purpose of tithing then? Well, it was, uh, there were several aspects of that. The first one is, it was through the tithe of God's people that the priests and the Levites got their living. That's how they were supported. That's how uh, they got their daily bread. Turn with me to Numbers chapter 18. And verse 26. Moreover, you shall speak and say to the Levites, when you take from the people of, the, of Israel the tithe that I have given you from them for your inheritance, then you shall present a contribution from it to the Lord, a tithe of the tithe. So the people would bring their tithe, and that was to support the Levites, and then the Levites, from what they received, were to tithe off of that, a tithe of the tithe, as it says there. But the point there being that the, the purpose of the tithe was, was to support these priests, to support the Levitical priests and, and the, those who served in the temple or the tabernacle. Another purpose of the tithe, however, was um, it was a contribution to corporate worship. So if you look at Deuteronomy, again, chapter 14, verse 23, <clears throat> It says, and before the Lord your God, in the place that he will choose to make his name dwell there, you shall eat the tithe of your grain, of your wine, and of your oil, and of the firstborn of your herd and flock, that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. So that tithe was being brought in, and when you, when you read this kind of language in the, uh, in the Old Testament, especially in the, the books of Moses, when it talks about the place that the Lord will choose, He's talking about the place where the tabernacle would be situated, and then later, later on, that ultimately became Jerusalem, the place that the Lord chose. The Lord chose Mount Zion. He chose Jerusalem for the place where his temple would be built. And so the tithes were brought there, and there the priests uh, could partake of them. And... The, the Malachi text makes reference to a storehouse. So people would bring in their tithes and they had places later, especially in the temple later on, but even prior to that, near the tabernacle, they had places where the tithes that were brought in were stored. And then they were distributed to the Levites during their times of service in the tabernacle. So it was, um, and it was also to, uh, to, for the upkeep 
of the tabernacle. And then finally, and this one uh, should be very uh, relevant and understandable to us today because uh, the purpose of what the third purpose of tithing was to support diaconal ministry. Diaconal ministry. Also in Deuteronomy 14, look at verses 28 and 29. <clears throat> it says, At the end of every three years you shall bring out all the tithe of your produce in the same year and lay it up within your towns. Within your towns, you see. And the Levite, because he has no portion or inheritance with you, and the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow who are within your towns shall come and eat and be filled, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands that you do. So what was the purpose of the tithe? It was to support the ministry, it was to support the tabernacle and the worship there, and it was to give to the needy. So that the church, in a sense, the community of faith, could support those who are in need, like widows and the fatherless. So you see that the purposes, or we could say the uses of tithing, haven't really changed a whole lot, have they? The tithe in the Old Testament among the people of Israel was used very much the same way your offerings are used in the church today. Now, as you're well aware, there are conflicting views on the relevance of tithing for Christians. And all you have to do is uh, do a uh, internet search and you'll find articles on why Christians should tithe. And you'll find articles on why Christians shouldn't tithe. And you'll hear people argue from the scriptures ostensibly for both of those positions. The question is, does the requirement to tithe apply under the new covenant? That's really what it comes down to. Or if not, does it belong to the ceremonial law, which is all fulfilled in Christ and is therefore abrogated because now that Christ has come and, and fulfilled the law, uh, it goes away along with the offering of blood sacrifices and the incense burning and all that? Or... Is it perhaps part of Israel's civil law? And we saw that it has a civil purpose. It provides for the needy, provides for the, the priesthood, which in Israel was the state religion. So does it belong to the ceremonial law? Does it belong to the civil law? Well, let me make a couple of points before we move on to their third and final point. And I want you to just keep in mind, as, as maybe you wrestle with this question and with this issue, Tithing predates the Mosaic Law. It predates it by a long shot. It predates the existence of Israel in the first place. We already saw that, that Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek. Jacob paid tithes. Jacob promised uh, you know, two generations from Abraham. He said to God, of all that you give me, I will give you a full tenth. So Abraham tithed to Melchizedek. Jacob tithed to the Lord. And keep this in mind while you, while you sort of tuck that away, that Abraham specifically gave a tithe, so did Jacob. Remember that giving offerings was a part of worship from the very beginning. Do you want to see it? It's in Genesis chapter 4. Genesis chapter 4. Verses 3 and 4, it says, In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. 
And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. And of course, you know what happened. It says the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. Uh, he received it, didn't have regard for Cain and his offering, and you know the outcome of that. The point being, the second generation of the human race, when they came before God, they brought a portion of what God had uh, given them, a portion of what God had blessed them with, and returned it to him. Cain did, Abel did. It doesn't say that it was a tithe, but I suspect that it probably was. And so if, if a person, if, if we recognize that giving is a part of worship, I think the, the case that, that tithing is exclusively a Mosaic or an Israelite notion, is a, it, it's a very weak case. You'd have a hard time really making that case well. I'll make a couple of points of application here just in a minute, but first let's go on to the third and final point. And that third and final point is the promise of God's blessing. Look with me at our text again and follow along, starting from verse 10. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need, I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Now remember, when Jesus was being tempted by the devil in the wilderness, and um, he took Jesus to the pinnacle of the temple and said, uh, if you're the Son of God, jump down, because it says here in Scripture that God won't allow harm to come to you. He'll bear you up on angels' wings, lest you dash your foot against a stone. And how did Jesus reply? He said, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Jesus answered Satan with scripture. He answered him with Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 16. You shall not put Yahweh your God to the test. But here, Malachi chapter 3, the Lord God himself invites the people to put him to the test. So the challenge is this, bring in the full tithe. Do it. Stop robbing me. And the promise is that if they do that, God will bless. The commentator Eric Ortland wrote, God's invitation to test him here is an insistence upon his unchanging faithfulness to his promises and goodness to his people. The command to test asserts the impossibility of God's failing to respond to his people's obedience. And how does he, how does he describe this blessing? What does he say he'll do? He says he'll open the windows of heaven for them. You know, and some people interpret that to mean uh, he'll send rain, which would be a good thing, and they need rain for their crops to grow. Uh, but I think of it more in terms of uh, just an abundance of all kinds of blessings. Rain, sure, but that God, from his riches in glory, would pour out blessings upon them if they would just obey him and bring the tithe. He says he'd rebuke the devourer. 
Nothing that might potentially consume their crops would be allowed to succeed. He would, he would prevent those things. He'd prevent the locusts and whatever else might eat their crops, consume the fruit of their labor. And ultimately, it just goes back to sustenance. He's going to provide for them. And he says, as a result of the way I'm going to bless you, my blessing upon you is going to be so evident It's going to be so abundant that the nations around you won't be able to help but to see. And that's what he goes on to say in verse 12. Then all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. Quoting Ortland again. Now listen to this and think about it in terms of your own giving. When Israel is asked to give back a fraction of what was never truly theirs, God responds with everything he has. Now, I will be quick to say that this challenge that God issues to Israel through Malachi, um, the challenge and the promise are not necessarily individually for you, the TV preacher may say it is, but it's not. This is, this is a specific challenge with a specific blessing attached for a specific time to God's people in post-exilic Judah. But God will always provide for those who trust in him. And giving back to him, returning to the Lord, a portion of what he's blessed you with is a demonstration that you trust him. It's a demonstration that you're truly thankful to him for what he's given you. And ultimately, what's the greatest thing of all that he's given you? Salvation in Christ. All the blessings of God are summed up in him. And I would challenge you, if you're on the fence about this issue of tithing, or if you you have another opinion about it, Ask anyone who does tithe. Let them share with you their testimony. Let them testify to you that God has never failed them. God has always provided bountifully for them. I think that's what you'll find if you survey any number of people who are committed to tithing to the Lord. I think they will testify that God has always blessed, God has always provided, and they've never had any need. So why are people opposed to tithing? What are their objections? They come in several different categories. I think, uh, first of all, some people object to the idea that Christians should tithe because it's legalistic. Maybe you've heard people say that. Don't don't tell me I have to tithe. That's that's legalism. I would just say, is, is obedience to the will of God legalism? No, I, I, I don't think you could make that case. Obedience to the will of God is not legalism. You can't say you shall not steal is legalistic. You shall do no murder, is that legalistic? I don't think so. I don't think you think so. I think just a distaste for the idea of the tithe leads people to make that claim about it. It's legalistic. But obedience to God's will is is not legalism. 
not when it's done out of an evangelical spirit of love for him in Christ Jesus. Number two, um, people will object to the tithe because they, as we've we sort of already touched on this, but, well, that was an Old Testament ordinance. That was for Israel, but it's not for the church. It's for the, for the Jewish religion, not for Christianity. Well, we've already talked about that. Tithes and offerings were from the beginning, long before Israel, long before Moses, long before Moses was even a twinkle in his father's eye, God's people were tithing. Tithing predates the law. And as one, one writer on this notion of tithing said, Jesus fulfilled the law, but when he fulfilled the law, he did not revise spirituality downward. So it's legalistic, some will say. Some will say, oh, it's, that's Old Testament. And some will say, I can't afford to tithe. I'm barely making ends meet as it is. You're saying I have to give more to the church? Well, Jesus spoke to this too when he was sitting in the temple across from the treasury when people were coming in and lots of wealthy people were pouring in large sums. And then along came this poor widow. She put in two small coins. And when Pastor Mark preached on this passage from Luke, it's been some time ago, but he made mention that this place where they, the treasury, where they, people would pour in their gifts was quite possibly a, a bin, a metal bin. So if you were a wealthy person and you came along with a big offering, man, everybody would know it because they'd hear all those coins clanging. I couldn't help imagine that poor widow coming and maybe even with a tear in her eye, grieved that she didn't have more to give to the Lord after the rich people in front of her made all that racket. She puts in her coins, and there's just tiny, two little tiny clinks that no one would hear. But Jesus, you know what he said about that? He said, she put in more than anybody. Because she didn't give a tithe. She gave 100%. Now, let's be clear. This is not, the the application here doesn't mean give God, um, or that you need to put 100% of your income into the offering plate. Obviously not. Obviously not. The point is this. God could rightfully lay claim to everything that you have because it's all his. Every cent in your bank account, everything that fills your house, every possession you own, they really ultimately are God's, which leads to this central principle, I think, that 10% is very little to ask. When we think about the tithe, and especially when people object to the tithe, they think that's a lot of money. But it's really not. Pharaoh in Egypt demanded how much? Pharaoh gets a fifth. Pharaoh gets 20%. Yahweh only asked for 10. How much does the government ask for you? Hmm? What's your tax bracket? The government wants more from you than God does in terms of your, your income. But let's remember this, and I think this is so important when it comes to our, our, our decision-making about giving. It's that God owns everything. It all belongs to him. 
Everything you have was given by God. We sang about that in the opening hymn. Now thank we all our God. Everything we have is a gracious gift from the Lord. And our opinions about giving have to start there. They have to start with an acknowledgement that nothing I have really is ultimately mine. It's all his. And wrong views about giving maybe not 100% of the time, but usually begin with notions of my money, my stuff, and so on and so forth. <clears throat> so let me, let me make one other thing clear. In case you're wondering, there's nobody here at First Scott's who's calculating your giving. Just want you to know. Um, the session doesn't know what you put in the plates. The deacons aren't running analytics on you. The finance committee isn't monitoring your bank account or anything like that. But God knows what you're giving. My brother shared with me this quote from Alistair Begg. He said, God is really the one with whom we need to deal because he's the one who searches our hearts and he knows whether my giving is in keeping with my income. But I would just say tithing is a richly biblical concept. It's not just a law for the nation of Israel. It's not just a law for the Jewish religion. It's a scriptural standard and this text speaks to it. But enough about tithing. Let's remember this. The text begins with a declaration of God's faithfulness, and it ends with a promise of God's blessing. Why wouldn't you want to give generously to such a faithful God who blesses you so bountifully? Again, 10% isn't that much. It's not as if God asks you to give up your firstborn or something. Although, it's exactly what he did for you. God so loved that he gave his only begotten son. He is a God who gives. And he calls us to be imitators of him in that. Let's pray. Thank you, Heavenly Father, that you've been so bountifully generous to us. We pray that we would have uh, liberal spirits, that we'd give generously back to the church, to those in need. Let us hold on loosely to the things of this world and of this life. Let us be swift to use what you've given us to support the work of your kingdom and to help those who have need. And let us... Uh, do all this with an eye to you and a desire to obey you and to show our love for you, for your son Jesus Christ, who laid down his life for us and whom you sent because you love us so much. We pray all this in his name. Amen.